Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Start. I'm your host, Patrick. Thanks for being here with me today. I appreciate you joining me and my guest, Jen Masari. This conversation in particular was incredibly fun. It was another on-site episode. What's really cool is that um, – well, I guess there's a few things that's cool. Uh, don't, let me get, don't let me get ahead of myself here. So in, I'll backtrack a little bit. In season one, we interviewed Johnny Hallman. Uh, he's also known as Destroy Today Online. I had a fantastic t- talk with Johnny and, you know, I was, I, I, was, I was giving you a little bit of history. So after that episode, Johnny and I started playing basketball together with a bunch of other people and we kept in touch and we become good friends. And it, sort of around season two, I was like, who do I want to get? And I was like, man, I want to get this person. I want to get that person. I was like, man, I really want to get Jen. Jen, at the time of that, it was Musari. It's Musari. And I was like, man, I don't like this chick's legit. She's a real deal. I don't know how the hell I'm going to get a hold of her. Um, so it happened and I don't – I didn't end up asking Jen to join the show for season two. I forget why. And the one day over the summer last year, me, Johnny, a bunch of the other guys, uh, actually Johnny Hallman, John Meese, Dave Dawson, and I think someone else. We got coffee after basketball at the Cafe Peddler on Court Street in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden, this woman walks up, Italian woman, dark hair. She – Looked really familiar. I was like, is that Jen Masari? I'm like, oh shit, that is. And then all of a sudden, I think Johnny kissed her on the cheek. I'm like, oh shit, Johnny knows this, knows her. She's they're friends. I was like, this is perfect. I can ask Johnny. Um, and I didn't want to do that, but like in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, if I have to, he can give me an intro. Then I realized that that's his wife. And I was like, oh man, all right, I'm a dumbass for not knowing this. Granted, I think I knew Johnny for maybe two months at that point, and we were just like hanging out, playing basketball and stuff. But since then, uh, I like to think that Johnny, Jen, and my girlfriend, we've all become pretty good friends. We play a lot of Tower Fall together. Um, but this episode in particular, Jen and I met up at the townhouse, which is their, the co-working space that they work out of. It's a beautiful, beautiful townhouse, hence the name. And Jen is working out of Ghostly Ferns, which takes up the, the attic up at the top. It's a it's wonderfully refinished, very well designed space that her and some of the other members of Ghostly Fern work out of. So Jen and I sat up there for about an hour. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about a lot of her life, which interestingly enough, she's never had like a what most of America would call a, a traditional full time job. She's always been a freelancer. And what's crazy is the school she went to, well, crazy to me. Um, I went to a typical state school, four-year university. She went to art school, so it's probably not as outlandish in in the art school realm. But uh, nobody there was telling her to go get a full-time job. Um, You'll hear throughout this conversation that a lot of Jen's education and training came with an underlying message of, you're probably going to be a freelancer. You're probably going to be working on your own a lot. And it's not going to always be easy. And we talked about that. We talked about, you know, how she's sort of grown up in the industry, uh, you know, her respective industry, which depending on the time period you ask her about, it's either um, custom lettering or illustration at some point and other aspects of art um, because she is trained as a, as a proper illustrator and to some extent uh, a fine artist. But yeah, she just didn't, I mean, she sort of knew what she was getting into from the get-go. And it's interesting to hear because, you know, it, it artistry and art in general was sort of 
an underlying theme within her family. Her grandmother is an artist. And you just learn a lot about her and her family and, and some of the stuff that she thinks about in this episode. It's a, in my opinion, it's a very good look into who the the wonder of Jen Masari is. Um, we all know her work. She was, you know, she did the cover of Amos Lee's album. I forget the name of the album, but we talked about it on the show. And she's done some legit shit. She's not just fucking around. Um, but you really get to understand her process, who she is as a person, what makes her tick. And if you, if we really wanted to drill down really hard, we can probably find some of the underpinnings of what makes her tick in terms of her work. But I won't stand in the way between you and that episode. Few, few of the admin stuff. If you like this episode or like the podcast, I'd ask that you please share it with a friend. Tell them about this episode. Tell them about uh, this season. Tell, send them the website, whatever. Um, the more the merrier. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Or if you do subscribe, maybe you can rate us or give us a, a nice little review. Nice little nugget of love there in iTunes because um, that'll help us out you know, with ratings and that kind of stuff. But thanks again, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. And I am removing myself as the obstacle between you and my chat with Jen Masari here on The Start. I was listening to a Mark Maron podcast and he had, uh, it was a panel of female comedians and one of them is the woman who did the voice of Bobby from King of the Hill. And she came on, she's like, how many people have touched this mic? She's like, how close am I supposed to be to the mic? <laughs> and then she started doing it in the Bobby voice and the oh, crowd, no. yeah, it was hilarious. But that mic you don't have to worry about. Um I'm just going to adjust that. It should be fine. <laughs> that also... boy is just not right. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, all right. So you're Jen Masari. Mm-hmm. I said that correctly. Yep. You enjoy cookies. I say that only because I make you eat them. He makes me cookies. It's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, Johnny's okay with that yeah. With that exchange. Yeah. Um, actually, he eats them too, so it works out. <laughs> He's probably more okay with it, really. <laughs> well, the one time... What was it? Uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before. Mm-hmm. He basically, it, I, so I you know, don't know Johnny super well, but I brought the cookies. He had the first one and he really liked it. And then just silently, he didn't say a word to anybody, just got up, got another one and just sat down as if nothing happened. Right. He tries to play it off as like no one will notice. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you could tell he was just like, <laughs> he was smitten with himself. <sighs> and I was like, oh, you like that? He's like, mm-hmm, yeah, I like it. You're like a cookie magician, though. You've, you're obsessed. You have this magical ability. I think obsession is better than magician. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I don't know. I've, I've never had a bad cookie, and I think that's because I like them too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while, what I used to tell people as a joke was like, you could pay me in cookies, but don't because I can't pay rent. <laughs> um, and then... Like, I would have LeVon Bakery cookies, and I don't know if you've ever had them. They're similar to mine. They're big, dense, like, gooey, delicious. And then one day I was like, I want to make these. And that's just sort of what started it. 
And then I found a couple blog posts about people like dissecting the recipes. And then I found one that I really liked and I've just slowly, slowly tweaked it. So it's not fully mine per se, um, but it's it is yours. mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yours. It, I've seen the notes that you take while you're baking them. It's definitely your recipe. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a nerd when I do that, by the way. Um, but no, it's it very out. impressive. I mean, yeah. to be that obsessed is really super cool. There's very few things that I've really been into this much. Something that like, I don't know, when I'm baking, it's definitely, I'm in the kitchen. I don't talk. I've noticed that. And I just do it. I don't know. It's like, it's for me, there's very much a similarity between, and maybe, maybe not necessarily baking for you, but I'm sure just in general, the stuff that we do, granted I do development and you do more design illustration stuff, letter, custom lettering, that kind of stuff. I like doing stuff with my hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love playing sports, hands, coding, cool, hands, cooking, hands, mm-hmm. and it's all that. And I think that's why I just like sort of find solace in it. You know, I can just go into the kitchen and just not talk and just do this thing. Yeah. And then when it's done, I can put it away and I'm satisfied mm-hmm. and I'm good. But those three things are also kind of mathematical in a weird way. Yeah, there's some logic. There's some thinking that definitely has to go into right. them. Right. Like when I cook, it's like, I don't know, it's more like painting, I guess. It's a mess. It's just like. <laughs> but it's okay. I don't use recipes. Really? Yeah. But then, so there's nothing wrong with that. My concern with not using recipes is that I'm going to forget it. I'm oh. going to forget how much of this I put in there, how much of that. Because the cookie is just so down. good that you need to be able to recreate it. Well, yeah. Like my roommate, he, um, my roommate Frank has eaten every cookie I've ever baked. Not a, since he's lived there. Lucky guy. Yeah, right. And over time, he's been able to try all of them. And he can tell me, like, this is better than the last time you made it. This isn't as good. This has too much salt. The last one had less salt. Oh, so he's honest about it. Oh, yeah. I mean... I'm just like, these are all great. I love all these. See, my whole... whole, I think I told you before, but my whole thing is that, like, I would love to have a booth. It's Morgensburg. Don't have to do it every week. I would do it once just to see how it goes. So with you guys, with all the beta tastings, I need brutal, honest feedback. Because I can't... if my friends lie to me, then there's no way I can go out and sell it to strangers and be confident. You know what I mean? Um, Your cookies are incredible. I appreciate it. Let's be real. All right. <laughs> um, well, enough about the cookies. Jen Masari, what do you do? Don't let me define what you do, rather. Sure. I mean, you said it pretty well. I define myself as an illustrator, mostly because I use a really traditional illustration practice. But you mean like paper and pencil? Yep. Okay. Yeah, but also in general, there are plenty of illustrators who use traditional practices that work digitally. Um, it's mostly about like who you're working with as clients, mm-hmm. who you're, who is then using your work and how, mm-hmm. um, and then also what the process is like. So for if a client comes to me, I'll generally use a really traditional practice in which they ask for a brief. Mm-hmm. They have an idea of what they want. They know why they hired me because yep. I have a very specific style. And then I provide them with sketches, feedback back and forth, yep. and then a final. And that's really traditional. You know, I feel like some of the work that my coworkers do, the people that surround me, maybe it's product design or web design is a lot more intangible. Mm-hmm. And I can really kind of fall back on this process, which is really good for me. Uh, okay, gotcha. That makes sense. That's, you know, I, I've never thought of, so when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I drew I, I, I definitely not an illustrator. I call myself a drawer because I was never at that level. Like I won like county awards, nothing big. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it, it's sort of crazy because my brother is a, he's a designer. He calls himself um, a software designer. 
And I think it's a fitting term because he works on a variety of platforms. Um, he can design for iOS, he can design for web, he can design for print, he can do a lot of it. Um, so I think it's a fitting term. But he was more the sports guy. Um, and I was like the artistic kid. Like I would just, my mom would just consistently buy me notepads and shit. And then I stopped. And now that I'm back into a world that is so entrenched in art to some extent, I'm just sort of kicking my, my fourth grade self in the butt for stopping. Well, yeah, I think that everyone, especially digital people, if you're a developer and you like working with your hands, like what you draw doesn't necessarily have to be good, but drawing is really great. Yeah. Or even just writing, like handwriting, it, it like engages your brain in a really interesting way that Mm -hmm. I think working on a computer does not. Yeah. Well, it's like tactile, right? It's like, uh, Mm -hmm. you got to feel the pencil, you've got to grip it. And I mean, like for like a brush pen, the amount of pressure you put into it determines how the stroke is actually present, not presented, but how the ink is laid on the paper and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. I've, I've sort of made a really passive goal to draw a little bit more. My, my problem growing up, even like when I stopped properly, I stopped properly drawing because all of my family members would draw me. Oh and yeah. And I'm like, you know, well, it, you know, I've realized now and I tell Anna this all the time, the easiest way to make me do something is make me feel like I have autonomy in the in whatever that thing is. Mm-hmm. So if you tell me to take out the trash, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> okay. If you lead me in a direction that makes me feel like I have a choice, mm-hmm. I will. If you're like, "Hey, can you take the trash out now or later?" I have a choice as to whether I take it out now or later. So I'm going to do it. It's just sort of on my like I'm air quoting, but on my own regard, mm-hmm. which obviously is not the case. So when family members were like whatever. I was like, ah, forget it. But I realized <laughs> the only thing that's maintained my quote unquote artistic ability was doodling. Like mm-hmm. you look at my notes in class and there's more doodles along the edges oh, of yeah. the paper oh, yeah. than there was notes. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was the same way. I, I would hope that most people drew when they were kids. Yeah. And I would really like to know that more adults are picking it back up, even if it's terrible, even like just straight up coloring in a coloring book. Yeah. Like, is surprisingly engaging. <laughs> is, so is, did you, oh, did you draw a lot as a kid or is this something that you sort of picked up? Like you made a choice later in life and just refined it. I drew all the time. Oh really? Okay. All the time. Yeah. And I mean, my, I can't, I come from a pretty artistic family, but what do your parents do my, so that's the thing though. My parents were not in art professions. Okay. So even though there was this kind of strain of talent that mm-hmm. it comes like directly from Italy, Basically, okay. my so grand, right. Okay. So my grandmother was a painter, and she's like the oh, most. Wow. She's totally Italian in the in the best way. Yeah. Like, and she would paint the Pope. Like that's how Italian she was. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Wait, so did she just have tons of portraits of the same yes. thing? Yes. Yeah. Or tons like, of portraits of the, of the Pope, saints, roses, and stuff. And, that's cool. And then she'd do these like really cute self portraits too. And how do you do a self portrait? I say that because you see in the movies where the person's like drawing, and then he like looks in the mirror. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you can kind of tell when someone has drawn themselves from life or from a photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely don't do that anymore. Yeah. But but like I got to see paintings on the wall. And when I was a kid, you know, my grandfather would be like, your grandmother painted that. I'd be like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. And so this encouragement to draw definitely 
was there when my sisters and I were kids. So that was really, really cool. Um, I didn't realize that it was a profession until much, much mm. later because my dad's like a sales guy and my mom okay. was a stay-at-home mom, you yeah. know? Like, of course, she encouraged us to, like, sew clothes and make fun stuff that's yeah. useful, but she was never like, oh, you should, art school's a thing. Like, you should go there. That definitely didn't happen for me. Like, when I found out that art school was a thing, I was super excited. Um, but then when I wanted to apply, she was like, maybe you should apply to a real school and maybe minor in art. And I was like, okay. Did she use the term <laughs> real school? Oh, yeah, real school. I mean, she would be totally embarrassed, like, if she she's totally come around and really yeah, yeah, understands yeah. creative professions now. Um, but I just think that in that generation, that really wasn't, yeah. A liable thing. Well, my, you know, you sort of got me flashbacking a little bit because my cousin's grandfather, so my cousin Devin, her mother's dad, I think it was her mother's dad, he was an artist as well. And he did dot portraits. Oh, crazy. So I think, I don't know that that's the proper name, but basically he would make pictures, but it was literally just dots. Mm -hmm. He used different dots pointillism yeah whatever that is pointillism <laughs> yeah um what is that like surat i don't know what that is do you either. know the I'm... famous painting of a bunch of people standing on the shore in france and they're all looking out at the river i don't how do you spell surat i'm googling it <laughs> i think it's oh god i'm gonna embarrass myself s-e-u-r-a-t possibly yep that looks like google said yes oh yeah exactly what you're yeah, i see you know what i'm talking about so that's pointillism Oh. There's also stippling, which is black and white. He did that. Okay. I'm going to stip. S-T-I-P-P-L-I-N-G. I failed the, uh, I lost the spelling bee in sixth grade, but now I'm redeeming <laughs> myself. Yeah, this is, so this is what he did. He did mm -hmm. a lot of that. Um, it was, I don't know that I, like, I'm looking at random picture. This person looks like freaking Jennifer Lopez or He's something. He's Googling right now. Yeah, I'm Googling. Something like this. He did a mm -hmm. version of this, yes. But, um... As a professional? Yeah. So, That's awesome. You know, it's interesting, and it, this has nothing... Like, my Aunt Jennifer is a journalist her entire life. She's a published author, and Jennifer's mom was a puppeteer. Whoa. Yeah. Like, That's legit. So cool. Yeah, old school puppets with, you know, with the strings and stuff. Mm -hmm. She would have shows all the time. But, so, that side of my family is artistic, and my brother and I were a bit more artistic. Like, he was a doodler, definitely, growing up. And I was a drawer, and I interviewed him in the first season, and one thing... He, that my family told him, they never told me, and I don't know that they were holding from me, but I think they told him because he was at a point in his age to like sort of get the, the realization of like potentially choosing his career. And I think one of my aunts or uncles was like, you know, if you wanted, and they were speaking more of a traditional art sense, like a mm -hmm. painter. Yes, fine art. Yeah. They were like, you know, most of those people don't really make it big. And when, if they do, it's usually when they die. And I think that is, you know, I don't know that he hung it up then, but he's not a, he's a designer. So, if, and I know his road to design was a little bit convoluted. Like he didn't go to art school for it. He went to the air force and then got out and then did like digital media. So his design, his foray back into quote unquote art, cause mm -hmm. art and, and then web designer definitely different was through a digital channel. And that was because he saw a market need, mm -hmm. but it sounds like yours was more driven by just, the sheer enjoyment of yeah. doing it. Yeah, definitely personal desire. It was also kind of like a damn the man thing because mm -hmm. knowing that my parents had creative ability but didn't use it was really frustrating to me. Was there a reason why they didn't? Um, 
I really think it's a generational thing. I just think that when you graduated college in like the mid late seventies, the thing was like, if you're a man, you get a job and you have a wife and now you can provide for your family and you just keep that job forever. Yeah. You know, and that's not a possibility anymore. Like it's just actually not financially (laughs) possible anymore for that to happen, which is really strange, I think, for our generation. Yeah. So we're like, at the same time, we're a generation that wants to do what we want because we don't necessarily want to provide for the government or whatever, or yeah. like do our part for society anymore. Or at least I don't. Like yeah, that's yeah. never sounded great to me. And then at the same time, we're trying to make money also in order to fund our lifestyles, which are very like kind of individualist. Um, and so for me, being an illustrator was really ideal because now I get to draw every single day yeah. and my clients pay me well, which is like yeah. everything I could ever want. And I'm like, everything in my your mid-20s. parents probably wanted for you too, right? Yeah, Maybe totally. not the drawing, but they wanted you to have a, a stable, happy life doing mm-hmm. something you enjoyed and yeah. you got that. Yeah. So it was tough because they didn't think that yeah. art was a possibility. They were much like, much like your family said. Um, or your friend's family said, like, their vision of art as a profession is failure. Yeah. It's like starving artists. Well, because most people that, I mean, not failure, but there's not that many Van Goghs, right? Sure. Or Picassos. There's, or Damien Hirst, I guess, anymore. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's also like when you, and I can relate to sports, there's only one Michael Jordan, but there's a lot of people who were also very good but maybe not at Michael Jordan's level. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably what's scary to a lot of our parents or our family members is that, like, there's a large group of people. Well, like, I can use sports again. 2% of NCAA athletes go pro. Wow. And I think that's what people get afraid of, mm-hmm. right? Um, that because you don't play in the NBA or the NFL that you failed when in reality you could go play in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also not a failure. They get paid very well, treated very well, respected, et cetera. And I would imagine that that maybe that mentality mm-hmm. exists in that world too. There's probably plenty of artists who do incredibly well. Mm-hmm. We don't know about every day. Well, the art gallery, like the art gallery shows that happen. People still sell their stuff for like twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars, and they're not household names. Mm-hmm. Sure, I feel like that analogies like that are kind of difficult to apply to design right now, though, because. Graphic design, and I feel like illustration is kind of being pulled along with it. Mm -hmm. Since a lot of illustrators are working with tech companies and startups, which is awesome. I feel like now we're in some sort of weird renaissance of design in which there are more jobs for designers and developers than we've had probably in a long time. And so now if you're in school and you're like kind of a weird creative kid, now there's people saying, you can build an iPhone app and you can yeah. make a million dollars. Whereas like back then you're like, why would you want to make websites for a living? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it definitely seems like the craft has met a generally speaking agreed upon purpose, mm-hmm. right? Like now you are, you are a kid who's very good at illustrating. You're very good at lettering. You're very good at web at designing and on a computer on it in a digital stance. Now you can take that something you enjoy and apply it to a purpose. And that purpose might be a tech company or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I think, as bad as it sounds, I think what ended up happening was our parents realized that people do get paid for these things. Yeah, definitely. And they're like, oh, okay. (laughs) At what point did your parents, like, finally, like, jump on the gen boat? And, you know, everybody's parents is always going to be their biggest cheerleader. Oh, yeah. But at what point were they like, oh, shit, like, this is is legit? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I have cool parents, so I was pretty lucky for that. It didn't. It took me a while to realize that, I guess, yeah. but like most people. But I think it was like I got to art school and I just really excelled. And it was totally the place for me. And I think that they recognize that, mm-hmm. even though they were probably terrified sure. that I was going to try and like be a fine artist. Mm-hmm. Because in college, um, the way that art schools worked when I was there was like there was the fine arts majors and there were the commercial arts majors. What's what constitutes a difference between the two? Um generally fine arts majors are making art for art's sake. They're okay. making you know, they might be painting a series of self-portraits and gotcha. then trying to sell those in a gallery. Okay. But ultimately they're making art because of their own instincts and mm-hmm. needs to create art. Whereas commercial artists generally are working for clients. Gotcha. Not okay. to say that fine art, that line has increasingly become so much more yeah. blurred, even only the few You could be an artist out. who makes your own stuff, but also make something on commission. Oh, yeah. But totally. it sounds like in terms of the art school, um, they treat this as two completely different paths. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. They encourage people to kind of see around it, though. It's mm-hmm. a Art school is so conceptual. It's really about the thinking more than the making. And so I was a fine arts major for three and a half years of mm-hmm. my four-year education. <laughs> so Where was this other half year? Basically what happened was I was making fine art and I totally loved it. And I was doing really well in school and, um, you know, getting scholarships and mm-hmm. it was good. It was a good thing. Um, and I totally could have done that for the rest of my life. But I had a teacher who kind of recognized something in me. I I snuck into a class <laughs> <laughs> that I wasn't supposed to take because I totally didn't have the prerequisites for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So alongside, I of, picture you like right. like like um, sneaking like, in the what, door. And what, like, what I envision is with the, the robber costume. On. Yeah, robber costume. <laughs> or like when the Grinch is sneaking around houses. Yeah, that's totally. what I envision. That's did me. you like sliding into the store? Basically, like, somehow I applied for this class and got in even, and, like, someone didn't actually look at my history. Oh, okay. So I I wasn't supposed to sign up for it in the first place, and someone just trusted that I had done it because I had the prerequisites for it. Mm-hmm. And the class was called Hand Lettering. Okay. And it was taught by a guy named Joel Holland, who um, actually came down from Brooklyn to Baltimore, which is where I went to school, mm-hmm. every week for class. And this Holy was cow. how many days a week was the class? It was just one day a week. Okay, that's not um, horrible. And I think at the time the school paid for his community. I hope it's like a four-hour train ride. I know that's crazy. And he did this for some reason. I think it was the only class that he taught at our school. But as soon as I, I saw his work, I was like, wait, this guy is getting paid to just draw letter forms. Yeah. And that's it. And I was like, this is what I need to do. Yeah. He was working on these awesome book covers. He was doing all sorts of stuff for like New York Magazine, which I had a subscription to at the time. I was totally obsessed. So you were seeing his work and not even knowing it. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And so I had seen his work all over the place. And then I actually met him and he had encouraged me to to pursue this. Yeah. Um, at the end of that class, he was like, you should come up to New York and... You know, I'll take a look at what you're doing and maybe I can kind of give you some advice. So he really took me under his wing. Was this like a, were you graduating when this class ended? Like, was this in your senior year? No, this was actually before. Okay. I guess it was my junior year or maybe it was that first semester of senior year. I don't know. It was earlier. And then, um, so I had been making all this lettering work 
continuously, like throughout, mm-hmm. since high school, I've been drawing lettering forever. Um, and then when I saw him and saw his work, I was like, oh, this is a thing. And then what happened was second semester of senior year, I had this, um, a- another teacher, Whitney Sherman, mm-hmm. and she was the chair of the illustration department at the time. Awesome lady. She has taught so many incredible illustrators and is an incredible illustrator herself. And she hardly knew me. Like I had taken a class with her before, like the one weird fine art kid in a class of illustrators. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I felt like I was continuously catching up yeah. to illustrators around me. And I just really wanted to be a part of it. And so she took me aside one day and she was just like, hey, Jen, your work is really about communication, even your fine art work. I really think that you'd be a good illustrator. She was saying, she made that comment based off of the work you've done prior. She wasn't trying to direct you. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So she had just observed in her own wisdom. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you should be an illustration major. And I was like, ha ha, you're so funny. It's my second semester of senior year. What a joke. I'm not going to enroll again for another four years of school. And she was like, no, really, I'm serious. We're going to waive all of your credits. Holy cow. Waive all of your prerequisites, and you're going to graduate on time. But what this means is that you have one semester to create an identity as an illustrator, create a portfolio, and send it out to art directors because you have to catch up to now all of the other seniors who've been doing this for years. Why why did you have to send it to art directors? Was that just like a senior project assignment kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, our, our, the illustration department at MICA was awesome mm-hmm. and they really kind of made an effort to, to, uh, hook us up with actual people working in the field. Okay. Instead of just kind of letting was it for you job off. placement or more like just no, networking just, growth, yes, like networking, sp- spreading mm-hmm. your wings, so to speak. Yeah. So Whitney specifically would like bring illustrators, young illustration majors to conferences with her. Oh, awesome. Right. To act as volunteers. And so many people met a lot of really great mentors through that. So, so she was really awesome. She just saw something and was like, okay, you're going to do this. And I worked really hard. Mm -hmm. I was like, a lot of sleepless nights. I bet. Yeah. I I would be working in the screen printing studio until like 8am often. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go home and sleep. And then I'd go right back into the screen printing studio and printing my thesis basically, which was a series of posters that were hand lettering posters. Okay. And um, that became my portfolio, which then got me a job at a school. Not a full-time job, uh, but a a big freelance job. Yeah. That really kind of defined my career from there. So I do have a question, and it's not related to illustrating, but Johnny was in the mix somewhere here. Yes, yeah. What year did you and Johnny meet? So I met Johnny... Uh, I guess it was my freshman year. Okay. Yeah, but we didn't start dating until I was a sophomore. Gotcha. So I'm I, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this because I would imagine he's <laughs> going to listen to this. Oh boy. How did and and you know obviously you don't have to get any approval from anybody, but knowing that you were in the studio, what it sounds like almost twenty four hours a day, seven mm-hmm. days a week. Yeah. Did that play a toll on your guys' relationship at the time? No. I he mean, probably had his head down doing yes, something too. Exactly. So, like, I think when you date someone who's also in your current situation, mm-hmm. you forgive them of a lot of things. Yeah. So the fact that he he was a year older than me in okay. school, and so he had just been through his thesis. 
Uh, okay, so he knew what what to expect because mm-hmm. he okay yeah definitely. that's cool and also like no offense to him he was in the graphic design industry but the fine art and illustration thesis were just much more grueling oh they were probably much more time intensive and detail oriented because mm-hmm. yes. you I mean it, there's very little error in Photoshop right like when you make a one pixel border it's very <laughs> easy to make a one pixel border and not fuck up right? sure but if you try to make a straight line drawn by hand mm-hmm. god forbid you move or something it's and obviously not that hard well, <laughs> you get a roller <laughs> uh yeah touche touche um but yeah i could see I how yours you is a little bit more involved sure um so what was this first big gig that you got well i mean it came out of whitney's connection actually so she brought in basically a bunch of art directors that mm-hmm. she either knew or other illustrators in the department had worked with mm-hmm. And she somehow got these super busy people to either Skype in or come down and look at the senior portfolios. And so this one guy, um, he was an art director working at um, Capitol Records, freelance. Yeah. Freelance art director. He had an album coming out that he he thought hand lettering would be really good for. And at the time, it really wasn't that cool. Hand lettering was kind of something that, like, People who were really into typography were, like, trying out. Mm -hmm. And something that illustrators were doing for, like, their comic book covers or their zines. And it was still very, like, lowbrow at the time. Um, Not to say that I was the first person to do that because that's completely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just wasn't at the... the the prevalence that it is now. Yeah, exactly. It's like right now, if you're an art director and you want to hire a hand lettering artist, mm-hmm. all you have to do is tweet hand lettering artist question mark, and you'll get probably twenty or thirty <laughs> or forty portfolios. So I'm guessing that the reason that I got this job was just sheer luck because I was one of the very few people that he had probably seen making hand lettering at the time. Yeah. So this like super established art director. Um, just remembered that I was doing hand lettering when he thought that this album cover Mm -hmm. would be good, suited for this, well-suited for um, something a little more gritty, a little more textured, Yeah, not just a font. It needed to be custom. And so he thought of me. That was sheer luck, I'm sure. Yeah. And um, called me up. And I had, like, just graduated. I was still in school when we were talking about this project, and I had just graduated when... um, we started working on it and it was the album cover for Amos Lee's mission bell. Oh, wow. Which launched that summer and became like a number one hit. It was on the top of iTunes and Amazon. So your work was everywhere. It was everywhere. And it's, I still see it around. Um, I have, I'm looking it up. Yeah. I have screenshots of like Jay Leno holding my album cover and like Ellen DeGeneres standing in front of it. Yep. That's me. So, looking at this and I'll link it in the show notes how much of this did you do and I ask that because when I hear lettering I think of just letters mm-hmm. but I know like I have a piece of your work hanging up the live fast and um dive dysentery there you go this <laughs> is the Oregon Trail fan art yeah I, I think it's great um and I'm under the impression that you also did the illustration for the the covered wagon. Mm-hmm. So did you do all of this work here or did you just do the lettering? Yeah. So that's another benefit of coming from like fine art and illustration where right now, since hand lettering is a super saturated market, there's a lot of hand lettering artists that have come from very digital backgrounds, mm-hmm. maybe are graphic designers, is that I can draw. Like I can you draw. You can draw your pants off. Yeah. If anyone needs 
anything else as well as hand lettering, I will do it. Yeah. And so for this piece, um, we had all these lettering focused sketches that we mm-hmm. were working on and over top of a photo of the musician, the musician saw it and he was like, I don't want to be on the cover. I don't want my face on the cover. I want like something illustrated like a crow or like um, some sort of like desert scene. Yeah. And my art director freaks out and I'm like, no, 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 I got this. So it went from being an um cover that just had some of my lettering work on it to an um cover that I had basically dominated. All of it's 100% of your work. It's totally me. And it still looks like me. And I'm still super proud of it. Even yeah, though it's, yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. The designer slash art director that I worked with added borders around it and mm-hmm. like all this colored texture. Um, which at the time I was like, why did you do that? But no, you know, yeah, I've grown I, can, like it. I can see it helps sort mm-hmm. of bring it to life a little bit more. Yeah, totally. Did you, in this one, did you get to work with uh, the artist? Um, no. Amos? There's, so there's an interesting story. Amos Lee, I'm from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Amos so Lee. You're a big Eagles fan? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny likes Eagles? Yeah. Okay. I don't like football. I sorry. I just like being the weird art kid in a school full of young male Eagles fans was horrible. There was a lot of Eagles fans there? Oh my god. Like if you football was life in my like suburb outside of Philadelphia. And it's just like an unfortunate place to be for like a weird punk girl. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So I was like, give me out of here. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. But Amos Lee is also from Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Okay. His real name is, I forget his first name, but his real last name is Masaro. So it's It's like one letter off. It's one letter off from my last name. So we very well could be related, but I don't think he ever actually cared enough. Ryan Anthony Masaro. Yeah. Yeah. That's Actually, awesome. my uncle's name is Anthony Masari. So that's really? funny. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Did you guys chat about that? Um, my family figured it out for me and they were like, yo, that's really freaking weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't think that he ever really noticed. Yeah. He probably didn't even look at like the credits on that that's album fair. to see who drew it. So did screen. you get credits in the album? Yeah, I do. It has my name on it. So now I need to ask the other question is. Does someone in your position, so you get credits in the album, does that mean you got paid? Like, did you get retainer stuff, too, for the album? No. I don't know how that business cycle, oh, I don't God. know anything about it's that. It's so bad. Is it? It's so bad. Yeah, I got paid. Like, I mean, I was right out of school also, so mm-hmm. I didn't really know what I should be getting paid. Yeah. And I took a very low fee for this. Um, but it to me at the time, I felt really good about it, and that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, And I felt really good about the work, but this thing took forever because music industry people just really are kind of flipping and like to change their minds all the time and think that they can spend like three months on an album cover. So how long did it take? I don't even remember. It took so long. Like I moved to San Francisco in the time that I was working on this. I graduated from school. I got engaged and moved to San Francisco in the time that I was working on this album cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And now I'm like, God damn, like I would never spend that much time on it, on something that costs that much. That's crazy. Totally. But I mean, that's, those are kind of jobs that you take out of school. You take what comes. And I was just really lucky that what came to me was this really huge, did this Same. work help get you additional work thereafter? I would imagine in your industry, 
because the work you do can be so public facing that it probably it probably doesn't mean you you have to go out and meet a lot of people. I'm mm-hmm. Not saying that you don't do that as well, um, but I would imagine you've got people on all walks of life on multiple states, countries, continents looking at this album cover. Mm-hmm. Did it help grow your name a little bit more, get you more work, anything like that? It sort of did, but indirectly. Mm-hmm. No one. At I'm least sure is, nobody was looking for the art credit in the in the I thing. Mean, I feel like a lot of jobs now, that's kind of how you do. Like, if you are working on an album cover and you see one that you really like, you can open it up and find out the artist and then, and then contact. From there. That's totally a legit way to get yeah. work. Um, but I feel like for this one, for some reason, it didn't quite do that for me. But what it did do was it gave me the confidence to say, like, I am an illustrator and I am a professional and I am a freelancer and mm-hmm. I can do this. Um, whereas, you know, graduating from school is terrifying enough, but yeah. graduating from school and trying to be a freelancer is like really terrifying. But yeah, I would imagine you probably don't know. Well, you really, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what to charge. You don't know how to charge. You mm-hmm. probably haven't had to deal with a bunch of contracts. Yeah. Was that the goal? Was it, I mean, like when I say goal, you know, when you think about college, it's like go to college, get a degree, get a job. So when you were couple weeks out from graduating where you like, I want to do freelance or was that just the first thing that came up? I really just think that that's how they conditioned us at school to do freelance. Yeah. And I think it was because a lot of the professors there were freelancers Mm -hmm. who also were teaching. Gotcha. Is there a lot, I mean, are there full-time illustrator roles out there? So that's another interesting thing is like at the time, and this was like between like 2008-ish, 2010. So not a good time financially for yeah. uh, anyone. Yeah. Um, really, good thing you weren't trying to buy a house. Oh, God. <laughs> or anything else. Really, at the time, like, the only full-time jobs for illustrators, as far as I knew, in school was, like, at maybe Rockstar Games. Okay. Like, doing the Grand Theft Auto illustrations. Mm-hmm. And maybe in comics houses, but they weren't really doing too great at the time. And they were really traditional and they were mm-hmm. super boys club, like not a place for... See, I would think something like a Hallmarky, like greeting cards. Yeah. As, I mean, I, I don't know how that fares in the world of illustration in terms of status or being a good job, but all, I no, mean, definitely, that's just definitely. the first Hallmark thing that comes to my mind. a great place yeah. to work. I mean, anything really like that is sought after by yeah. illustrators in school. Um, and at the time, it was just like, how do we apply illustration in a way that will make me money enough to live? Yeah. And we were really trying to get creative. You know, Etsy was was really taking off at that time. And okay. So, so you guys are selling of, a lot of your right, stuff. A lot of my colleagues at the time were um, creating products and trying to do like the DIY route. And so it was a really like versatile environment, which was really exciting. But ultimately, the main goal was to be a freelancer, mm-hmm. I think, in our program. And um, it just, to me at the time, felt like there was no other way, which, I mean, I love freelancing now and I've finally become successful at it. But that first year was like horrible. <laughs> what do you mean when you say finally successful? Um. Like, so I, I guess that also is a double question of why was the first year, like what constitutes as a horrible year mm-hmm. for a freelancer fresh out of college? I only ask because I know when I was in college, I realize now that I lived on like $400 every two weeks. Yeah. Like that's what I got paid. Mm-hmm. And I was, granted, I, I didn't live in New York, right? I lived in Florida, so it was substantially cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I just know I could live on a lot less then. So I wonder what, right out of college, what would seem as a not good year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was all, I had just moved to San Francisco also, which was oh, okay. not. So it's di- different price point from Baltimore. Yeah, but also it was just not a friendly place mm-hmm. for freelance illustrators at the time, unless you already had a ton of friends who were really successful. Gotcha. It was like this really weird lowbrow like street art scene that was dying out at the time. So there was that. And then there was the tech scene that was blowing up and they didn't really care too much about hiring freelancers at that time. Things have definitely changed. They definitely hire freelancers now, um, which is really cool. They're some Mm -hmm. of my best clients are are, uh, tech startups. But yeah, it was just like not a friendly place for a young like female illustrator who was just trying to get to know people in the industry. Yeah. Everyone was like hiding. It felt, it was like, Uh I'd meet people out in the world and be like, Oh, I'm an illustrator. What do you do? I'm a graphic designer. And I'd be like, cool, let's talk about that. And be like, yeah. And then that's the end of the conversation. I'll text you later. Bye. Right. And I don't know if it's just like me being biased against California, but like, as soon as I moved to New York City, I would say, hey, I'm an illustrator. And the other person would go, oh, my God, I know an illustrator. You have to meet them. Here's their contact info. Yeah. It's like aggressively friendly almost mm-hmm. in trying to support each other in uh, the Brooklyn creative scene, which is awesome. And so that's what I really needed. It was like there's this phrase in freelancing, which is the first four years Okay. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just like an art thing, like art schools tell their students this, but like they basically prepare you. They're like the first first four years are miserable. Like get a part-time job because you're going to need it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like I had a part-time job working in retail, which um, I never wanted to work in retail, but I needed to pay the bills. And also I actually credit that with so much of my client skills. Oh, I could imagine. Oh my gosh. Like, I really think that if you're, especially now that we're in the era of like 20 year old CEOs. Oh yeah. If you're like a 20 year old CEO (laughs) and you run like Pinterest or something, some huge conglomerate, like you should go work in a restaurant if you've never done it, or you should go work retail. Learn how to deal with people. Deal with people who don't like you. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Or in a rush or (laughs) you basically are in between them and what they need to do. Right. Exactly. So I learned so much about how to talk to anyone. I could have a conversation with anyone at this point just from dealing with like kind of uppity San Francisco women who just wanted to spend $4,000 on clothes. And Where did you shot. work retail at? I was working at Anthropology and I was a personal shopper. Okay. So that was also really fun because I would work one-on-one often with clients. So that's actually directly transferable. Mm-hmm. That's a, it, Now, did you do that on purpose or that just, you just sort of applied at Anthropology and they were like, here, personal shopper? No, I actually had a teacher in school who told me he was like, this really tough guy, illustrator, super cool, Dan Crawl. His work is awesome. Mm-hmm. He told me, like, when you get out of school and you're trying to make it as a freelancer, take a job that's completely unrelated creatively to illustration so that when you get home from this 
shitty job, you can focus all of your creative energy on your own work. You probably like yearn for it too. You're like, I can't wait to get mm-hmm. home and go do totally. this. Yes. And I think that really worked for him and it didn't quite work as well for me because I've, I'm someone who really wants to do very well at every single thing that I do. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I will be a good personal shopper. I will be the best personal shopper. And then I was like, no, no, this isn't what I want. Get me out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, so yeah, that kind of determination can be misfocused sometimes, I think for me. And uh, I wouldn't say it was bad advice because I managed to pay my bills and live a good life while I was, while I had this part-time job. But uh, yeah, I maybe shouldn't have worked there so long. How long were you there? (laughs) I was only there really for like, Two years. Oh, it's not bad. No. It's, you know, it's interesting. I um, I read something. I either read or I watched something, but it was in, and more in regards to actors. Mm-hmm. Um, because oftentimes actors have, if you're not, like, if, if you're still trying to make your way as an actor, which could take a year, could take 10 years, you often have a part-time job. Mm-hmm. And this particular quote, it, it was something along the lines of, Even though you do acting less than you do this serving or coffee shop or whatever, it's still the full-time job. This thing you spend more time doing is still the side gig. Mm -hmm. And once I read that, I was like, oh, shit. You know what? I was like, you're right. And it's super easy, right? Because all that is is shifting mental focus. Sure. It's seeing that, okay, I have to be at this place for eight hours. Yes, that's most of my day. But this is not what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. This is not what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Even though I spend more time doing it, it's still just the side gig. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm I'm a firm believer if it takes you three, four, five, ten years to do something, like, just, I don't know. Commitment is is big. I don't think anyone like you or... You know, I had Jessica Hish on the show last season, and I, prior to her coming on, I read a lot about her work. But she was working a full time job in design, mm-hmm. and then would go home and would work till two, three a.m. every mo- every night sure. doing illustration, lettering, kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know, it's I guess it's like part skill, right? Like mm-hmm. if you suck, well, you suck. But on the other side, time side, it's commitment. So even if you suck and you com- and you're committed, you get better. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a tip my hat. There's a lot of respect to give to folks who just like stay at the same thing. Cause we sort of aren't conditioned to do that mm-hmm. as much, especially not young adults. Like you hear, and I know I'm going off on a rant, but um, I don't know how many people I see on Facebook or friends that are like, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to go travel. And, <laughs> um, and right. I'll, I'll find this quote. My buddy shared it with me. It's by this guy, Ryan holiday. He's our age. I think, you know, mid twenties or whatever, and he's written a book or two, and he uses this quote in his book. He didn't. He didn't say this, but it's somebody else, I think. And the premise is: you've got mid twenty kids quitting their jobs to go travel the world to admire things like the pyramids, like the Great Wall of China. All the while, the things they're admiring, someone spent years doing and focused on, and it's sort of like this. not juxtaposition to me it's hilarious because you've got kids who are sort of openly saying like hey i'm not going to focus on this thing i'm not going to get better i'm just going to fuck around for a little bit yet they're admiring work that someone spent years breaking their back over doing and perfecting and now it's like this masterpiece it's almost they're going to sort of like slap themselves in the face and they don't even know it 
Maybe. I also think though there's something to be said for actually figuring out what it is that you want to do. Yes, and, and that's I think, fair. I think I was so lucky to meet Joel Holland when I did mm-hmm. and to meet Whitney Sherman when I did because they unknowingly, just by being themselves, really focused me. But even out of school, like that first year of freelancing, like I felt very adrift. Even though I knew what I wanted to do, I didn't realize that hand lettering would be what it is now. If someone had told me then that hand lettering would be the only thing that I need to do for the next however many years, and you can make as much money as you need to doing this, Mm -hmm. I would have been able to rest easy. But like, still... there's uncertainty in it, right? Yeah, totally. There's so much uncertainty. Even though I was doing the work that I'm so proud of um, as a specialized hand letterer, it's like... At the time, I was still trying to do illustration and editorial and maybe even comics because who knows? I have no idea what's going to be. Yeah. Um, You're just trying to be prepared at that point. Exactly. So I think like there is something to be said for going out and kind of figuring out what it is that you need to do. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people maybe don't find that by doing it and they kind of need to really go search inside of themselves to do that. Yeah. I'm just someone who kind of needed to figure it out by doing it really. Yeah. No, that's true. I think, you know, that, that the quote that I mentioned about kids traveling and stuff, I think you definitely made a fair point. Um, I think that though there comes a time in which if you are uncertain, you, you don't need to pick a direction, but you need to sort of confront the uncertainty, right? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. At what point did you, and I don't know that this actually exists. Is there any point in which you said, I just want to do lettering? And mm-hmm. I want to, like, you were doing comics, you were doing illustration, you were doing lettering, you were doing editorial. I was trying to make products. I was, like, really just trying everything? to make everything. So at what point did you say, I'm not going to do that anymore? It was really, um, I think it was two things kind of fell into place. When I moved to New York City, I started to meet people who became friends and clients. Okay. Hold on. I want to, just so I understand... You were in Baltimore. Yes. From Baltimore, San Francisco, mm-hmm. San Francisco to New York. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. Yeah. And specifically Brooklyn too. I mean, not to say that there's anything different about the rest of New York City, but there's a creative scene in Brooklyn that's just very, yeah. very supportive. Well, we're um, in a house right now recording this with 30 plus people who are a part of that. Mm-hmm. And they're all pretty cool people. So Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I'm at a place right now where a couple things have have become really peaceful Mm -hmm. and it's that I specialized in my own work because people trusted me enough to do it Mm -hmm. so I found out what I wanted to do on the one hand which was just draw letter forms that's what I was happiest doing and at the same time on the other hand people were ready to pay me to do it so that I could afford to live how I need to live (laughs) you know pay rent and live work in this townhouse so um a lot of the people that I met in Brooklyn were friends first who, because they're creative people who wear a lot of hats, then maybe became clients also. Yep. Either they pulled me onto projects that they were themselves working on or they connected me to people who needed someone with my very spe- specific skill set. Um, and so many of these people just very quickly felt like family and it was really, really sweet. It sounds like you found a group of people similar to you Mm -hmm. versus growing up in suburban Philadelphia where you don't like the Eagles. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, so many of the people that I met in Brooklyn are people who also maybe kind of like 
had to wear a lot of hats and do a lot of different odd things. My friend Carrie, she has had the most hilarious, interesting history of Uh jobs. She was a pizza delivery person. What? She was a kindergarten teacher. She, like, farmed things also. Mm -hmm. And now she's a designer at Etsy, and she makes incredible work. (laughs) I know. Yeah, Karen Campbell, she's the best. And she's hired me for a couple projects, and we've collaborated. And she's a dear friend also. And these are the people that I want in my life who are really awesome friends who do work that's very different from me or similar to me. It doesn't matter. Um, I do love having a really diverse group of friends who then I can also call family and like work from this townhouse yeah. with them. That's really, you know, it, it's interesting because I feel like there's a definitely, and and I've sort of thought about this and I'm not like anybody, I'm not going to write a book on this kind of shit. It's just something I think about, but it, it I feel like for people, especially people in a more creative, I personally don't like to use the word creative, um, but in a more creative sense, you end up with a group of people who are closely related in field to what you do. And then you might go out a layer and those people are a little bit less related mm-hmm. to what you do. And that's sort of the group. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think what ends up happening is there's comfort in those groups because those people work in a similar fashion and because of that, they respect and acknowledge what you do versus if you were an illustrator and all of your friends worked in finance. Mm-hmm. They would have no idea what you do. They wouldn't know how to respect it. And it probably would just be different conversations that might or might not go well. It doesn't, I mean, I have friends in, I think we all have friends in different walks of life. Oh, yeah. But the ones who sort of support you in a more professional manner are those who sort of do what you do too, mm-hmm. um, day in and day out. You know, I don't know. It's sort of, it's like, I always sort of think about like what the, like these groups of friends, like, okay, well, when I hang out with this, these type of friends, what do we talk about? Mm -hmm. Hang out with these type of friends. What do we talk about? Do we do anything different? Do I have some friends, you know, you might have some friends that you just like go get drinks with and that's fine. And it's always, I don't know. I think the dynamic of people is interesting just because it sort of propels you into a direction or it fuels a direction you're already going into. Mm -hmm. Um, But the townhouse is, I don't know when, when Johnny, you know, when Johnny and I first met was from the podcast on season one, he's like one of the, so I don't know if I've said this on the air, Johnny to date has the most plays out of any interview. Oh, dang. In two seasons. It's only two seasons. So it's only I'm like 24. Competitive. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, but no, so from that episode, uh, we talked about basketball and I was like, yo, put me on your email list. And he surprisingly six months later did. I was like, he remembered. This is all right. Right. So for you guys, Johnny is my husband. He started. Well, I don't think he started. He and a bunch of guys that he, um, we are all friends with, started what's called a bad basketball league. Yeah, Brooklyn bad basketball. Yeah, and so it's just a bunch of dudes who and some ladies who get together and they don't care about the skills of each yeah. other and they it's just fun. It's have just fun. Just for fun. You know, playing in our neighborhood in Carroll Gardens. Just basketball, like Sunday mornings. Obviously not now because it's like two degrees outside. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's how I got to know you then, yeah. Patrick, also. Yeah, but, it, you know, it's – I liked it because it's a group of people who – I think the way that we play basketball has given me a new appreciation for non-competitive basketball because I've played competitive sports my entire life. Mm-hmm. But to know that there's a group of people that I can just fuck around and have fun with has right. been – Awesome. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that meeting a lot of those guys and girls and everyone's sort of, I don't want to call it like a maker class, like a maker's class of people kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a bunch of people who under, who make things with their hands to some extent. All right. They don't sit behind a desk and just put numbers in an Excel sheet has really, at least for me, allowed me to feel more comfortable about the stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, feel more comfortable not knowing because I have people who didn't know what the fuck they were doing, you know, two years ago when they were in my position. And just meeting other people making stuff. I don't know. It's it's always in, it's definitely a, a a group of friends that I enjoy being around. Mm-hmm. And it's to me, it's interesting how we're all sort of a part of the same creative class, but also have our own variances. And it just I don't know makes for good conversation and good people. Yeah, definitely. In a dope ass townhouse. Yeah. So I I mean the townhouse is kind of a cool little story too. Yeah. Um, we started as a group of coworkers called Studio Mates, and um, we were working from a very industrial space in. This Dumbo. is down in Dumbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Dumbo, Brooklyn, right on the waterfront. Um, really beautiful views. Terrible quality building. Yeah. Uh, I was. I remember working at my desk and there was a fire and... Wait, like with flames? There, <laughs> Like legitimate... Like we're on the sixth floor, right? And yeah. the fire was on the first floor and I could smell it. Like there was smoke oh, in the wow. noise. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was a real fire. Yeah, it was a real fire. There were like really grungy like recording studios and like a yoga studio on our floor and like all these... Um, I don't know, kind of odd people that we didn't really know our neighbors very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like it was just a building that was there weird, to be rented. Yeah, weird, rent, shady landlord. So basically this building obviously is like prime real estate for some big, beautiful condos. Yeah. We knew it was a matter of time until we got kicked out. And yep. so Jesse Arrington. Well, that's like all of Brooklyn yeah, at this point. Yes, especially Dumbo. Dumbo yeah. is ridiculous for how fast it's developing. So um, Jesse Arrington, Creighton Mershon, and Kasson Rosenblatt, they kind of led the march away from Dumbo and just tried to find us a permanent home. So we had already established a community of friends and coworkers. People, a lot of us have collaborated. We're all uh, really enjoy each other's company. We all travel together. Mm-hmm. It's just like a big hippie commune of designers. A group of friends that work together. Yeah, yeah. So we spend a lot of time together because we genuinely like each other. Yeah. Um, so, and then we share office space. And um, I wouldn't say it's a traditional co working space in which you can just kind of drop in and drop out. No one really yeah. knows who you are. This is like much more like, like a, a family. Uh, well, you know, it. It's interesting because, you know, the stuff that we talked about, the people you hang out with and, and just sort of the comfort that you have with those people, it's a family and you guys coincidentally have a co-working space in what is traditionally a home. Mm-hmm. So it, it's very fitting. Mm-hmm. So what happened then was we wanted a place where we could all be comfortable in our practices you know, I'm someone who sometimes paints things Mm -hmm. and sometimes makes a mess. And then there's a bunch of web designers and developers who are very clean and have like nothing on their desk. The quiet room. Sure. And there's like writers and, um, you know, traditional designers, print designers, web designers. And then there's someone like Jessie, who's more of an events experience planner. Mm -hmm. And she um, makes pillows and paints signs and has, like, makes pennants out of felt. And, like, Jessie's mom, Martha, will come up 
from Mississippi and oh, really? they'll like craft things. <laughs> That's awesome. She's incredible. Um, they're all really incredible. So it had to be a versatile space. And we found this townhouse was opening up mm-hmm. and it was a startup office. It had been converted for a startup called Kitchen Surfing. Mm-hmm. And um, Kitchen Surfing was really awesome. They were really excited that we were potentially going to come in and take the space. We took a tour and we were just like sold. Where did we sign? Yeah. yeah this place it's five stories. We have a huge basement where Jessie can do all of her crafts. Oh, is that where that happens? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering what you guys use right. the basement for. Yeah, totally. So making a mess, lots of storage down there. Um, so that's really ideal. We have a patio for like summer soirees or whatever. The patio is amazing. It's going to be so great. It's like um, you can actually fit. Pe- it's not a New York patio where it's right. like uh, like two square feet. No, it's a that patio. You just sort of lean out your, your window. It's, it's like a, a real. Yeah. yeah. For real. And then off of the patio is this huge kitchen with like, it's beautiful. I mean, you've baked your cookies there. Yeah. And we had lunch there today. Yeah. And so the second floor is just all social space, which is something that we've always wanted and never really had room for. Yeah. Um, You know, the space that we moved from, we had to walk down the hall to our communal bathroom to get running water. We didn't have running water in our space. Like we didn't even have a sink. So if you drank some coffee, but you didn't finish it, you had to walk all the way down the hall like past the grungy, smelly, sweaty yoga studio and like dump it down and then come all. So this now we've moved into this like gorgeous home. Yeah. um, And we all just feel so at peace and really happy. And it's just such a, positive environment this is exactly what college should have been like Like, (laughs) you know what i mean like you get to live with your friends but you're not living with your friends in a shithole yeah you're living with your friends in an awesome place and you all get to make stuff yeah totally i mean a lot of the people here do have more traditional schedules Mm -hmm. so it's like okay nine to five and that's it or like ten to six or whatever and that's it but i'm someone who likes to work at nights and i still have access to the townhouse at night or on weekends, like we're here today yeah. on the weekend. And it's totally peaceful and wonderful. And so it's really um, able to kind of be in flux for everyone's needs. And, um, yeah, it's just been a really supportive it's, place. It's, yeah. You know, I've I've been here twice and I'm like, this place alone, and obviously hanging out with you and Johnny and some of the other guys and gals that we've played basketball with, has made me question how I could go freelance. And how, how can I convince them to let me work off the couch? Oh, basically? boy. Um, no, but, you know, you brought up a thing about traditional schedules. Do mm-hmm. you – it sounds like you work when it's you're best suited to work. So that might mm-hmm. be at night on Monday and during the day on Tuesday and maybe during lunch on Wednesday, whatever. Um, because you've been freelance your entire life, do you maintain a – uh, a schedule that allows you to keep some level of sanity? I only ask because I know for me right now I'm full-time and I'm freelance – um, and there's a bit of burnout, right? Cause I'm literally coding all the time. Um, and then on the weekends I try to like not touch it unless I like a really big deadline. So do you, is there anything that you try to employ, um, to prevent insanity from happening? Um, that's a tricky question. Cause I feel like I really suffered in high school when mm-hmm. they were like, you have to be at school by eight and then you leave yeah. by three, blah, blah, blah. I really, like, do not operate well with a schedule. Mm -hmm. And so I almost, I've started to realize this over the past couple years, and I'm almost aggressively not adopting a schedule. So if I'm sitting at my desk, and it's, like, 2 o'clock, and I got to the office at 12 because I sleep until 10 or whenever I want, (laughs) which is totally great. Yeah. 
And it's two o'clock and I still haven't really like pulled out anything to work on. And I'm still kind of just reading Twitter and like answering emails or something. I might just leave for like an hour and then come back because I need to just know that I'm not getting work done at that point in time and embrace it and just not try and force it. Yeah. So if then I come back and it's like four o'clock and I work from four o'clock until like 10 o'clock. Yeah. That's totally fine. Like, I try not to, I try aggressively not to guilt myself. Into like working. Well, it's or also. Or about working yeah. even. Like if I work until 12 or 1 and I'm still here at the townhouse working that late, I try and be like, that's okay. You know, tomorrow might be different or it might not. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as I get enough sleep and I'm healthy, really yep. that's all that matters to me. You know, it's interesting too because like you, the, the 9 to 5 shtick, well, it's fine. It, it, it depends on what you do, right? Like. For me with development, if I just need to code something mm-hmm. and it's just straight up, I know what I'm doing, I just need to do it, I can do it whenever. Mm-hmm. But if I actually have to come up with a, a unique solution, sure, it it's a detriment to anybody to try to force that uniqueness time mm-hmm. into a, a, a slotted schedule, right? Mm-hmm. Like you if you have a if you have client A and you need to do something for let's say it's an editorial, you need to do something for a spread, if you're not feeling it. And you force it, you're probably going to have shit, I would imagine. Or not shit, but it's not going to be your best work. Yeah, sure. I mean, I like for an actual example, I had a deadline in which I was working on something for a friend and I was working here at the townhouse. And then they announced that they weren't going to indict in the Ferguson trial. Uh And I was just like so into reading Twitter and trying to figure out what was going on. And yeah. then as the protests, I was trying to follow protest movement and protests were happening here in New York City. And I was like so emotionally hung up in this that what I was working on that kept me from actually going out into the street and engaging in this was actually bad. Yeah. And I sent it to the client and I was even like, I think there's a better way to do this if you just give me one more day. Yeah. And... um even though I had presented them with a final piece of artwork, that was okay. Yeah. It just wasn't good enough for me. Like it definitely, um, forcing myself to work sometimes against a deadline doesn't always produce the best results. If yeah. I'm not a hundred percent in what I'm working on, but I'm also at the point where like, I am a conceptual thinker enough that I can generally come up with what I need to do when I need it. Yeah. Done. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting. I know, Anna knows this about me. Uh, and for the listeners, Anna is my girlfriend. If I have a, let's say I have a, a project or a client and I haven't touched it, I'm probably thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I am actively working mentally all the time. Not to where it's like exhausting or anything. It's just my mind's like, oh, maybe I can do it this way. Maybe I can do it that way. Oh, try this. Yeah, why don't you write that down, Pat? And that's just sort of like what goes on in my head sure. uh, to help me figure out how the hell I'm going to do something. And it's actually, you know, I realized I did it in college. And basically what would happen is I wouldn't touch a paper till the day it was due. But I've actually been like pre-writing, quote unquote, in my head this whole time. Like basically just planning out how I'm going to touch these points mm-hmm. or start here, going to that. And, and it surprisingly would work out sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's like the 90-10 thinking. Yeah. Where it's like 90% conceptualizing and thinking and planning and then the 10% doing. Yeah. At what point do you know when something is good or done for you? Cause I, I, when I try to do like, I'm not a designer. Um, but I've said this before because flat design is a thing. Mm -hmm. I can be passable. 
in design. Okay. Right? <laughs> um, but part of the reason why I don't design, and, and even though I'm a front-end developer, I don't ever want to design is because I am never satisfied. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, and I'm not, I don't think I'm a good designer at all. But if I had to compare myself to anybody, it's like when you're a young designer and something's good, but it's not the best. You know, there's like that, there's that little piece that a young, um, unexperienced designer is missing and they don't know it. And mm-hmm. it takes an experienced designer to tell them. I'm like there. So nothing ever feels done. Mm-hmm. I will literally iterate 17 times on something because I just don't like any of it. And then I just quit because I'm like, I'm never going to finish this thing. So mm-hmm. when do you, when is done for you? I'm sure it probably varies. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and the more that I specialize in my work, the more that I'm thinking about this. Mm -hmm. For me, I feel like since I use a traditional illustration practice, my work can be very direct. And often when I iterate too many times on something, it loses that directness and that thought. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it good. And so sometimes for me, the best solution is the simplest visual solution And um, I'm trying to really embrace that Mm -hmm. and encourage clients to go with the thing that has the most immediate energy yeah. instead of the overly thought out, overly conceptualized thing. Like super elaborate? Yes. Interesting. And do you, like, is it something you feel innately or is it like you come to a point where you've checked off all these boxes on this, uh, like, uh, you know, fake list? Mm -hmm. Like, Like, how do you feel that? How do you know? I think so much of that is in the mental, like, concept stage Mm -hmm. of what I do, is that I will not draw anything until I have a pretty clear, concise concept of what it needs to be, Um, whether that's, like, what purpose it serves for the client or how it needs to look. um, I will not draw anything until I have, you know, a pretty good idea of what it should be. And so that makes it a little bit easier to just kind of really bust it out and then also convince the client that it's good. <laughs> nice. And how long did it take you to get to, I guess, let me rephrase that. At what point did you realize that this was a beneficial way for you to do work? Like, I'm sure when you first started, you probably didn't didn't mm-hmm. process things in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much stress too when you first start about like, getting it right. And, um, there's also this weird power dichotomy Mm -hmm. in illustration where illustrators generally tend to think of themselves as somehow lower on the totem pole than Mm -hmm. art directors. And so the art directors are seen as these like almost holy creatures and whatever they say goes. And because um, of the director, right? It's almost exactly in there. It, it's in their title. So maybe it's like a perceived thing. It's that. And also it's the idea that, um, and it might be slightly outdated. I really respect art directors currently working now, but maybe 10 years ago, it was really easy for an art director to make an illustrator's career. Yeah. Like if an art director worked at the New York times and they hired them, mm-hmm. that illustrator could have then been made. Whereas now it's a little more difficult um, because there's so many applications for illustration, which is good, I think. And it kind of levels the playing field a little bit, too. So it's this idea that an art director could make your career, which I actually think is kind of an unfair position to put an art director in. Yeah. As an illustrator, it's really up to you to make your career. And it's, the, yeah, because you're doing the work, right? Like right. But nobody then also, else should have to be able to dictate that. You should think, an, if you're an illustrator, an art director wants to know you 
and not just your work, but as a person. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always treating my clients as actual people first and their titles second. And I think that that has been really, really good for me for um, the process is just so much easier. When I feel like I'm emailing with a friend, I can then be really honest about my process and say, I know that this is what you wanted. I don't think that's working really well. So I did this instead. Here's both of them. Let me know what you think. Yeah. And that trust is there between both of us. They trust me and I trust them. That's awesome. Um, and I think that that's working really well. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. acting like normal people. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Not this like businessy, since you're paying me, you're super boss and you're what you right. say rules. Even it puts though. an illustrator in a bad position. Yeah. And maybe that's... designers feel this too, like in a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, I really feel like the people who've hired you have hired you because they respect you and you need to continue to maintain that. Yeah. Why they need to respect you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause they've hired you for a particular set of skills like Liam Neeson. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, every time I, I say, will pa- find you every time I say particular set of skills, that's all I can think of. I know. Um, but yeah, no, they hired you to be an expert. It, you know, it, the example I always use is, do you tell your car mechanic how to fix your car? You don't. Sure. Cause you don't know. So it's almost as if that, that, that same respect based off of skill or trade mm-hmm. should be extended to anybody mm-hmm. with, with a particular skill or trade. Um, so we're coming up to an end here. We have the three. There's only three traditional questions that we ask. Okay. And, and we're entering those. Knowing everything that you know now, what would you tell your younger self? Oh, gosh. And it can be, any, it can be younger self in college, younger self taking that first job, younger self when you were four, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I think it would be just to trust yourself Mm -hmm. because that's what's really got you here. Yeah. That's good. (laughs) Succinct. Yeah. Um, But then also don't be afraid to ask for help on the other side. Yeah. Um, I feel like the time that I was struggling in San Francisco was also because I wasn't quite sure how to get the help that I needed. Mm -hmm. Was it like a fear of like, um, like imposter syndrome kind of thing? No, I think it was actually, I was coming from the mindset that maybe there was an art director out there who was going to make my career. Gotcha. And I didn't know how to find them and I didn't know who that was. And I didn't really realize that at the time, if I just did what I really wanted to do and make the work that I wanted to continue to make, then the art directors would find me. Gotcha. And that I didn't need to kind of go out. You took control. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, The other question is, what would you tell someone entering? So if, if you met, if someone emailed you randomly, was a, a, a currently a student from your alumni or from this alumnus, this, I don't, whatever, the school you went to. Alma Mater. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, 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 Alma Mater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know why I try to throw. It's pretty weird Latin. Like, yeah, whatever. Really, All right. Dead language. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Just kidding. And they emailed you and was like, look. I need you to bestow knowledge upon me. What would you tell them? I'm really not the type of person who likes to give out advice. I really generally am the type of person who, if someone is offering free advice, I'm like, okay, there's something wrong here. Why are they offering free what, advice? Who are you really to be giving everyone advice? Yeah. Like, why do you feel like you somehow know more about the world than mm-hmm. everyone around you? So I generally like, Try not to be the type of person who's like, well, this worked for me, so obviously it's going to work for you. But there is a piece of advice that another professor of mine, Alan Comport, gave Mm -hmm. our class. And he 
He was not an illustrator, and yet he worked in the illustration department. And his job basically was to make us good humans <laughs> who could then function. That's a tough job. I know, who could then like become actual professional people. And so he was like, don't forget to pay your taxes and stuff like that. <laughs> Um, And yet one of the most insightful pieces of advice came from him in school was that um, he said that after you graduate, basically he was, he prefaced it by saying, you're in art school right now. You're surrounded by your peers. You're surrounded by people who are a lot like you and who've had really similar experiences to you. You're never going to have this again unless you make it. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you need to find a way once you graduate and go into the world to continue to be a student. And what that means is not just continue to learn and to continue your education, mm-hmm. but to also find a community that will support you in the same way. Gotcha. And that, you know, it's interesting considering that we're in the townhouse mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. That's uh, really cool. Um, the last question, it's the secret fun time questions every episode. It is not related to anything about that we talked about. And you know, I, I typically make them up right when I announce a secret fun time. And I thought about, I looked at the, the thing here to see how much time we've spent. And then I was like, I need to come up with a secret fun time. <laughs> and at first I was going to be like, would you be a, a puppy or a kitten? That was mm. the original one. But I feel like I'm, I might know the answer there. Yeah, really? So I, I think I have a good one. You are the star of your own television show. Oh, God. What's the television show? What's it about? What's it called? Oh, no. It can be anything. It can be a sitcom. It can be drama. It can be reality television. Mm. You're the star of it. It's got to have a name. Ooh, a name? Yep. I'm not good at naming things. I think I'd have to come up with with what it is first. I think it would be a reality show. Okay. And what I would want to do is act as just a host. Mm Mm-hmm. And interview people who I like, but not interview them, interview their grandparents <laughs> or their parents. <laughs> yeah. What would you call it? Maybe it would be called like the OG or something. <laughs> oh, and the intro could be like the OC. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. But like, but the, the OG. But it's all old people. <laughs> That's perfect. Right. What, um, where can people find you if they wanted to talk to you <laughs> online or anything like that? Oh, man. I'm on Twitter all the time. Okay. Um, my handle is at Jen Masseri, just my name, um, all one word. I I mean, you know this. Like, yeah, you yeah, see, yeah. Pat sent me an email, and I didn't respond, so he hit me up on Twitter, well, and I, I emailed within seconds. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted at you because I didn't, I didn't want to show up and no one be here. I didn't think you forgot. I would probably be but here. I also thought it was on Saturday, not Sunday. Mm-hmm. So that that was part of the reason why I did that. <laughs> um, just to sort of keep myself sane. But all right. Uh, yeah. Twitter. And then Instagram also. Same handle. Gemissary. I love Instagram. It's super fun. But I really love having conversations on Twitter. So Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Jen. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs>